Please turn with me in your Bibles to our Old Testament reading, which is going to come from Isaiah 26. Then we'll go to our sermon text in Acts 23. Acts, uh, sorry, Isaiah 26. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 and then uh, over to verse 16 to the end of the chapter. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. And going to verse 16. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who rides and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. Amen. Let's turn now to Acts 23. We'll start with the last verse of the previous chapter. So starting with Acts 22.30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. 
Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to give you a few 
names from Bible history and see if you can figure out what they all have in common. So here are the names. Joseph, Mordecai, Daniel, Zerubbabel, that's one you don't hear every day, and Paul. Okay, Joseph, Mordecai, Daniel, Zerubbabel, and Paul. Now, if this were Sunday school or something, I'd let you try to puzzle it out for a while, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you the answer that I have in mind, which is this. Each of these men in Bible history faces a conspiracy that is intended to put an end to his mission, in most cases his life. But in every case, that conspiracy actually becomes the means that God uses to advance that man of God's mission and to accomplish the opposite of what that conspiracy intended. So think about Joseph, his, his jealous brother sell him into slavery. But that enslavement becomes the pathway for Joseph to the court of Pharaoh. Think about Mordecai, Haman builds his gallows to hang him. But the next thing you know, Haman is having to lead Mordecai around on one of the king's horses saying, thus it shall be done for the man the king delights to honor. You think about Daniel and how his rivals get him thrown into the lion's den for praying to the Lord instead of to the king. But of course, it's they who end up getting eaten by the lions while Daniel is rescued and he's honored. Um, Another one's Zerubbabel. This one's a little less familiar, but in the book of Ezra, he's leading the people in restarting the construction of the temple. And their opponents in the region send a letter to the king saying, they've started rebuilding their temple. You've got to put a stop to this. And what answer comes back? But no, they are supposed to be building this temple. And in fact, you are the ones who are going to have to pay for its construction. Okay. So what's happening here to Paul in this chapter stands in a long history of the Lord using precisely the conspiracies of his enemies against him to defeat their schemes and to vindicate his servants, to glorify his own name and to accomplish his own plan. That pattern we're going to see play out again here today in Acts 23, which we're going to take in three parts this morning. First of all, the prejudice of the priest, that's up through verse 5. Second, the principal point, verses 6 through 10. And third, the protection of the prisoner. Uh, so to begin with, the prejudice of the priest. There's a famous scene in Alice in Wonderland where the Queen of Hearts uh, says, sentence first, verdict afterwards. That's the, the knave of hearts is on trial for stealing the tarts that the Queen of Hearts had made. And whenever he tries to explain his innocence, trying to defend himself, the king and queen twist his words into Evidence, they say, for his guilt. And I think there's something like that going on in this opening hearing before the Sanhedrin or the council who gather at the request of the Roman tribune uh, who's trying to figure out what exactly are they trying to charge Paul with? What is the accusation here? I don't even know. Um, But as soon as Paul opens his mouth in his own defense, Ananias, the high priest, immediately commands him to be struck. And what this shows is that the minds of the people in this assembly are already made up. They're not interested in giving Paul uh, what you might call a fair trial. Um, Because, as you can see, even his claim of innocence, they see as further proof of just how guilty he really is. Classic case of injustice. The irony, though, is that even though they're accusing Paul of speaking against the law, 
Paul is the one in this passage who shows that he's actually very sensitive to the requirements of the law in a way that they are not, that he is seeking to conduct himself in careful submission to the law while they keep breaking it at many different points. Um, So, for example, uh, corporal punishment, beating, is a possible penalty under the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 through 3. But only, it says, after people come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. Again, that's Deuteronomy 25. But here, the striking comes first. Sentence first, verdict afterwards. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, when when he is informed um, that it was the high priest, actually, that he had just lashed out at, uh, when he says, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, and so on, um, you know, we can get a little preoccupied wondering, you know, was Paul right or wrong in his response? Was this uh, sinful anger that Paul was showing? I, we can ask those questions, and it's worth considering, but it can distract us from the real point here that, that Luke is showing us in the way he tells the history, which is Paul's sensitivity to the law of God, where he says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, see, he, he quotes chapter and verse even against himself, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He is showing that he is sensitive to the law, even in its details, and even when a grave injustice has, is being um, committed against him, contrary to the law, he's not going to use even that as an excuse to reject the law himself. And you can see how this relates then to the accusations that they're bringing against him, that he's been speaking against the people and the law and this place, the temple, uh, back in chapter 21. That's what they've said about him. And Paul's consistent defense is going to be to maintain, I am the one in this situation who is seeking to be faithful to the Old Testament. It is my accusers who actually are living contrary to the very scriptures that we both are claiming to uphold. And this is part of the great, one of the great themes of Acts, that Christianity is, in fact, the fulfillment and not the rejection of the Old Testament scriptures. That it is those who reject Christ who are the ones who are actually rejecting the law and the prophets. As Jesus said, for it is they that bear witness about me. That, that continuity... Between, between true Old Testament religion and Paul's apostolic message is the foundation also for what happens next in verses 6 through 10, where Paul manages to put his finger on what we're calling the principal point in this whole ordeal, the principal point. Now, when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, verse 6, and uh, we want to understand these are two uh, groups within the world of first century Judaism. Uh, and so many of you are familiar with this. With this. The, the leading priests in Jerusalem were all Sadducees. Um, Sadducees had a very strong working relationship with the Romans. Uh, they were wealthy. They were politically powerful. Uh, the Pharisees, on the other hand, were characterized um, by their rigorous attention to the details of the law, especially as it had been interpreted through uh, the building up of oral traditions of the rabbis. And um, those oral traditions of the rabbis, the Sadducees did not follow in the, in the, as binding uh, for them. In fact, the Sadducees uh, mostly viewed as authoritative 
uh, just the five books of Moses, in fact. Even the rest of the Old Testament they didn't view on the same level as the Torah, um, much less the teachings of the rabbis. And one of the consequences was that these two groups um, had some different conclusions about key doctrines, including their uh, views of the afterlife, what happens after you die. The Pharisees uh, would have embraced the hope of a passage like Isaiah 26 that we read earlier. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, the earth will give birth to the dead. All the Sadducees um, did not believe in the resurrection of the body. They did not even believe in any kind of um, blessed, heavenly, spiritual existence of the soul after death. And that was why... Uh, This is how you can remember which which is which, right? I know it's corny, but uh, remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection, and that was why they were so sad, you see. So I have to always have to pass that one on to others. Uh, Anyway, verse 6, Paul really um, gets to the heart of the matter, then the principal point here, when he says, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Okay, now this this kind of strategy that Paul uses here has an immediate effect, but it also has a long-term effect um, that's maybe not quite as obvious. The immediate effect um, is that by saying this, Paul gets the Pharisees and Sadducees to start arguing among themselves. And if they're arguing among themselves, then they're not going to be as effective in prosecuting Paul with Romans um, with a kind of united front. Their internal divisions are going to undermine uh, their ability to accuse Paul before the Roman authorities. Um, And in fact, as you can see, the the dissension between them becomes so violent that the tribune Claudius Lysias has to intervene again to rescue Paul uh, from being torn apart by these rival factions. Okay, but there's, there's more going on here than Paul merely just capitalizing on the internal divisions between his opponents. Um, there are a couple commentators that point out another major aspect of what Paul is doing here. In, in order for Paul's accusers to get a charge to stick against him with the Romans, they're going to have to demonstrate not that Paul believes things contrary to the scriptures. They're going to have to prove that Paul is a either a political threat to Rome or at least a civil threat to just the general peace and public order of the place where they live. That's, that, those are their only pathways to getting Paul executed or, or even convicted of anything before a Roman judge. And so Paul's um, defense here and, and uh, throughout is consistently to maintain that he is both a loyal Jew and a loyal Roman, that he is not a troublemaker, that he's not an agitator with a political agenda, but that the real disagreement, the real clash between him and his opponents, and the reason they're actually upset with him, is theological in nature. He is a loyal Jew seeking to be true to the ancient faith of his people. And see, if he can consistently define the issue in those terms, then the Romans are going to Uh, be able to find nothing actionable in any of these complaints against him. Uh, So that's the case for his defense that Paul is building in this second section. That's the long-term impact of his statement in the council. 
Um, notice that he's not only personally asserted that this is the main issue, he's also got his, gotten his opponents to start um, talking about the issue in those terms, very stridently, right there publicly in the presence of the Roman powers that be. Okay. Besides that practical, strategic side of things, though, there's something even more fundamental here for us to see in Paul's statement. Because Paul has put his finger here not only on the principal point of the conflict between him and the Jewish leadership, the the real reason he's on trial. He's actually put his finger here on the principal point of the whole apostolic mission. The whole message of the first generation church. The whole message of the book of Acts. You will be my witnesses. That was Jesus' charge to his apostles back in chapter 1, verse 8. And then after the Damascus Road, chapter 22, verse 15, Paul himself was told, you will be a witness for him. We have to ask a witness of what? Giving eyewitness testimony to the people of Jerusalem and to the world about what? About the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive and reigning on the throne of heaven. That is the central fact of the Christian faith. Not a moral lesson, not an ethical code, not a mystical experience, not an intense and meaningful feeling that Christians share. The heart of the Christian faith is a fact, a fact of history. A fact of God's saving, supernatural action breaking into time and space and history. That Jesus Christ died for our sins on the cross and that he rose again from the dead. That is the gospel. That is the good news that Jesus committed to the church and to his apostles in particular to proclaim to the world. And it is with respect to that hope, the resurrection of the dead, that Paul is now on trial. And so as we turn to the rest of the chapter, verse 11 then is a very important transitional verse, carrying on that same theme into the next stages of Paul's ordeal. So the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That is Paul's mission, is to testify to the facts about Jesus, not to testify to his feelings, not to testify to his personal religious experience. He is to testify to the facts as an eyewitness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that project given to him by Jesus comes then with a promise from Jesus, doesn't it? That, that mission, that mission is, is surely going to continue unhindered until it has been carried out all the way. As you have testified the facts about me, to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And I just want us to imagine for a minute the, the reassurance, um, the relief, the confidence, and the courage that that promise must have given to the Apostle Paul, who, who surely had to be wondering at this point, um, am I ever even going to leave Jerusalem alive? Am I going to end, end up... Uh, sharing in the experience of Jesus, of being killed here at the hands of the Romans. Is this it? Is my work for Jesus 
done. Is he about to take me home? But Jesus reminds Paul here, as that missionary told you about before, John Payton put it, that he was immortal. He was immortal until his master's work for him was done. Okay, now I'm not going to go back over all of the details of the conspiracy to kill Paul, starting in verse 12, all about how it gets foiled in God's providence. It's it's a wonderful story. Um, Pretty straightforward what's going on here. What I want to focus on as we draw to a close is what it means, how it fits into kind of the grand scheme of Acts and of Bible history. So verses 12 to 35, we could say our, our proof that Jesus is keeping his promise to Paul in verse 11. They are, they are proof that even as the enemies of Christ conspire against his servant, there is, in fact, another plot afoot, right? A divine plot, a divine plan that, um, that their efforts are not only powerless to prevent, it's not just that, It's that their efforts are, in fact, the very way that God's plan is going to get carried out. So at at the end of the pretrial hearing before the Sanhedrin, the council's case against Paul um, is just completely falling apart. And so you could envision a circumstance where the tribune, Claudius Lysias, might simply let let Paul go. Um, But Christ has set a course for Paul to Rome. He is going to use the wealth of Rome to pay Paul's way. He's going to use the uh, soldiers of Rome to get Paul there in safety. And in fact, the the conspiracy that they hatch in verse 12 is what guarantees that Paul is going to get sent on up the chain of command of Caesarea, Governor Felix. When uh, who, Who knows if that would have even happened if they hadn't tried to kill Paul. Um, even better, what I love about uh, the sort of visuals of uh, this episode is just the, this huge investment of resources that Claudius Lysias throws at making sure that Paul gets to Caesarea safely. 200 foot soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, horses for Paul to ride on. Does it, really, does it feel here like Paul is a, is a prisoner, really? almost feels more like he's being treated like a prince. Um, it's like instead of being transferred to Caesarea in the back of a, of a cop car or, or a prison bus, he's being, he's being tra- transferred in a presidential motorcade <laughs> with the Secret Service and the lights flashing and the limos. Um, I wouldn't go that far because it is, of course, it's secretive. It's at night. And, but, but the point here is, is this, uh, the way that the Romans are treating Paul with this great value. He's a, he's a very important prisoner. <laughs> VIP treatment here with all of the resources of the Roman authorities being brought to bear to keep him safe and to get him to Caesarea alive and well. It really does remind me of that wonderful scene in Esther where Haman has to parade Mordecai around on the king's horse. And, and remember what, Mordecai's, uh, sorry, what Haman's wife tells him when he's just so humiliated by this, he said, she says, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And here the Lord is doing it again. It is that divine plot 
It is the plan of Christ that is prevailing. And um, the end of the story is guaranteed by Christ for Paul. Take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And if you think about it, this really has been a major theme in Acts from the very beginning. Remember that grand opening agenda-setting speech of Peter at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where he told the people of Jerusalem, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. God, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You remember how the cross was the plot of men to rid themselves of Jesus. But in fact, all along, it was a divine plot, wasn't it? To accomplish our salvation, to raise us with Christ to glory. That's the gospel. And I want to encourage you this morning that just as Jesus guaranteed the end of Paul's story, the Lord Jesus has also guaranteed the end of your story. Not in the same terms, not exactly the same way, but just as surely, in a way it should give you just as much confidence as the Apostle Paul. What boldness it must have given Paul to know for certain, on the basis of Christ's promise, that he would reach Rome alive. What fearlessness that would give him during his um, legal trials, during the storm, and the shipwreck, and being bitten by a viper, and all the rest of his adventures that are coming up in the next chapters. To have Christ's promise you will testify also in Rome. I just want to invite us to think then what, what kind of boldness and, and fearlessness it ought to give to us as the people of God now to know that Christ has guaranteed the end of our story as well, that his kingdom will come, that his will will be done, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it till the day of Christ Jesus, that, that whoever comes to the Lord Jesus in faith He will never cast up, but will raise him up at the last day. That he will never leave you or forsake you. That he will guide you with his counsel and afterward receive you to glory. Psalm 73. We, like the Apostle Paul, no less than he, are immortal until our master's work for us is done. There is a divine plot afoot in your life as well, in your family, in your household, and in this local church. And it will not fail. It will not be foiled by the enemies of Christ until all of God's plans for you, all of the work that he intends to accomplish through you, are finished. And that is good news for the people of God. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your word says that even the wrath of man shall praise you, that when the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against you and against your anointed, that you who sit in the heavens shall laugh because you have set your king on your holy hill of Zion. Lord, we thank you that even in the very act of taking the life of Jesus, that they were not taking his life. He was laying it down the authority to take it up again, 
sins. He bore our sins and purchased our salvation and won the victory over sin and death and Satan for all of his people. Lord, we pray that you would please strengthen our faith in the same Lord Jesus who now is reigning over us, who has guaranteed the end of our story. And Lord, help us to live with obedience and faith, with that confidence that you gave to Paul. Um, that your will will surely be done in us and through us because it depends not on our might or on our, our power, but by your spirit. These things will be accomplished. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.